have bought us with your life blood as the price never grudging for the lost ones that tremendous sacrifice Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, what is the longest you've ever fasted for? I'm assuming you've probably had to fast at some point, a time or two in your life, and even if it was unintentional, maybe you were stuck somewhere without a ride and without food, and you just had to wait Or maybe you were meeting up with a group of friends, and unbeknownst to you, right before you met with them, they had all eaten. And and so there you sat with their bellies full and yours just rumbling and moaning as you longed for something to eat. Maybe it was something more serious. Maybe you had to do it before a surgery. There's a lot of reasons why people unintentionally fast. There's even more Uh, reason. There are even more reasons why people do it on purpose. I I actually started a pretty rigorous fasting regime at the beginning of this year, and I share that very personal glimpse into my life with you because I have to. Because apparently one of the reasons why people fast is so that they can tell other people that they are fasting. You see, fasting is is sort of like the crossfit of dieting. Like, how do you know if someone does crossfit? Just wait, they'll tell you. That's what fasting is. It's, It's sort of like the crossfit of dieting. You have to tell people when you're fasting because, and I hate to admit this, it makes you feel morally superior to those who are not. This this is your third meal just today? I haven't eaten for like 72 hours. Do you know how much more clean, more disciplined, more righteous I am for, well, not eating? There is an inherent religious aspect to fasting. A self-righteous facet to abstaining from food, which is why Jesus is asked the question he is in our gospel reading this morning. They said, Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but your disciples are not? Now, God had commanded his people to fast for an entire day. Once a year in the Old Testament, on the highest day, the most important festival on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, God's people were to fast. 
But by the time Jesus is on the scene here in our gospel reading, that had ballooned to over a hundred times a year. Two days a week is how often the Pharisees and therefore every serious Jew fasted. You remember the story that Jesus told once about this, right? He tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee looks up to heaven and he thanks God that he is not like other people. In other words, he thanks God that he is better than other people. Why? How? What is it that makes him so much better? Well, he gives two reasons. One, he gives 10%, not just of his money, but everything he owns to God. And two, well, I don't just fast once a year. God, I fast twice a week. And that wasn't some random number that Jesus tossed out to try and make the story better, to make this Pharisee look more righteous. This was just Jesus telling a story about what a Pharisee is like. Twice a week, every Monday and Thursday, the Pharisees mandated all Jews to fast. And you can understand why, right? I mean, if God tells us that it is good for us to fast one day a year, how much better will it be? How much better will we be if we multiply that by 100? How much more clean, more disciplined, more righteous will we be than... Well, for starters, then your disciples, Jesus, who apparently don't fast at all. Mark 2 should tell you that the context of this is very early on in Jesus' earthly ministry. And already the Jews could tell that Jesus was going to be a problem. At the beginning of Mark chapter 2, we are told that Jesus healed a paralyzed man, a paralytic. You remember this story. The four guys bring their paralyzed friend in on a, a, a mat. And Jesus is teaching and preaching in a house. And it's so jam-packed with people that they can't get their friend in to see Jesus. So they take him up on the roof. They tear off the roof and they lower him down right in front of Jesus. But before Jesus heals the man, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Jesus, you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. And to show them that he could forgive sins because he is God, Jesus then also said to the man, pick up your mat and walk home. And he does. Then from there, Jesus is, is walking and he sees a man, a tax collector named Levi, or you probably know him as Matthew, the writer of the first gospel. And Jesus says to this tax collector, follow me. Come be one of my disciples. And then Jesus goes and he stays with Matthew in his house and he eats a meal with him. And the Pharisees say, Jesus, you can't do that. Do you know who this guy is, that he is a sinner? And you're eating with him and you're staying in his home? You see, from the Pharisees' perspective, Jesus was doing that which he should not do, forgiving sins and forgiving sinners. And Jesus was not doing that which he should be doing, fasting. In other words, Jesus, you're, not, you're just going around declaring people to be righteous. 
can't do that. What you should be doing is what we're doing, and that is showing people how to become righteous. And as a response to the Pharisees' encouragement, really it was an accusation, Jesus tells a couple parables. The first, Jesus said, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. You see, the whole point of fasting was to prepare. When God instructed his people to fast on the Day of Atonement, it was to show them why the sacrifice of atonement was necessary, why the lamb had to die, why its blood needed to be spilled over the altar and even sprinkled over the people. It was part of their repentance. It was their confession. We have sinned, God. Have mercy on us, O Lord. And to show that, they fasted. It was their confession. But what happened when the sacrifice was over? What happened when the lamb died? Your sins are forgiven. Your sin has been atoned for by another. You see, the Israelites saw the seriousness of their sin, that the wages of sin was in fact death. The death of that lamb proved it. But they also saw the mercy of their God, who accepted the sacrificial death of that substitute lamb. And because of that lamb, the fast was over and the feast began. Jesus said it's kind of like going to a wedding reception. You only fast until the bridegroom arrives. You don't eat, you don't start the party until the bridegroom enters. This is the way that weddings worked where I'm from when I grew up. The, the, the wedding party would normally come back into the church after the ceremony and they would take a bunch of pictures and then they would hop into a limo or onto a party bus and they would go to another scenic location where they'd take even more pictures. And on that route, during those stops, they would hop at a couple of bars and have some celebratory drinks. But there was a time when the bridal party had to be to the reception hall because the meal was promptly starting at 6 p.m. or whatever the time was. And yet, it wasn't the time that actually started the reception. You still had to actually wait for the bride and groom to show up. I can remember going to weddings where the bus driver got lost or the the pictures took too long or the bar tab ran over and the bridal party was 30 minutes, an hour late to the reception. And yet the waiters, the DJ, all of the guests, we all waited. We fasted in preparation to party with the newlyweds. Jesus was saying, now imagine that the bridal party showed up. They made their grand entrance. All of the preparations had been made. Everything was ready. The food is being brought out, put in front of the guests, and they stand up and say, no thanks, we'd like to keep fasting. No, the fasting served a purpose. It was for a time, 
But the purpose and time of fasting is now over. Now it's time to feast. The bridegroom is here. You see, Jesus was saying there was a time for God's people to fast. There was a time to prepare. All of the Old Testament rituals and sacrifices and practices served a purpose. They were to prepare God's people for the arrival of the bridegroom. The entire Old Testament era was really a time of fasting, so to speak. But Jesus, the bridegroom, had now come. And now that he's here, you can't have both. You can't fast and feast with the bridegroom. It's one or the other. You either have to fast with the Pharisees, relying on man-made rituals or your observance of the law to make yourself righteous, or you can simply trust the bridegroom and feast with him at his invitation. Come to the wedding banquet. Everything is ready. It has all been prepared. Come and celebrate the righteousness that I have won for you. Jesus does reference another day of fasting that was coming, however, when he, the bridegroom, would be taken away from them. He's pointing ahead to the ultimate day of atonement, the last and great Yom Kippur on Good Friday. When Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be taken away to a cross, taken away to a tomb, where the world would fast where it would unmistakably see the incalculable cost of their sin wasn't some animal, but the very life and blood of God's own Son. And they fasted until, until three days later when the bridegroom came back. And what does Jesus do? I just noticed this this week looking at this text. What does Jesus do in nearly every post-resurrection appearance that we have recorded for us in Scripture. He doesn't just show up and say hi. He doesn't just talk. He eats. When Jesus appears to his disciples who are hiding behind locked doors on that first Easter evening, they're terrified. They think that he's a ghost. And so what does Jesus say? Give me something to eat and I'll prove to you that I am real. Earlier that evening, Jesus broke bread with the Emmaus disciples. Later on, when he restores Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, What does Jesus do? He takes some of the fish after the disciples have this miraculous catch and he has breakfast with them. The bridegroom had returned. Righteousness was accomplished. The fast was over. It was time to feast. Jesus doubles down on this very point with a next, with a, uh, next with a set of mini parables. He said, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Easy enough right? A new piece of cloth used to patch an old garment will never work because when you wash that garment, the patch will shrink, but the old garment won't. The patch will pull away in the garment, uh, at the garment and, and make the hole or the tear worse than it was to start with. And you can't put new wine into an old wineskin. Why would you? 
Wineskins were typically made of animal skin, which meant that when they were first made, when they were fresh and new, there was a little stretch to them. They had some elasticity to them. So you could put new wine, which was still in the fermentation process, giving off all kinds of gases, uh, wine that would expand, you could put that into a new wineskin and it would expand until the process was over. But old wineskins, those were already stretched. They were stiff and brittle. And if you would fill one up with new wine and it couldn't expand, it's not like it just wouldn't ferment. It would burst the old wineskin and the new wine and the old wineskin would both be ruined. Okay, nice, cute science lessons, Jesus. But what's the point? Here's the point. Jesus is not a righteous patch for your unrighteous garment of a life. Jesus says you need a whole new garment. Jesus didn't give his perfect life into death just to fill the gaps of your life's little mistakes. Jesus says you need to be born again. You need a whole new life. Jesus didn't shed his blood so that he could pour it into your self-righteous heart. Jesus said you need a whole new heart. Jesus did not come to show you how to make yourself righteous. No, Jesus came to declare you righteous. You, all of you, body and soul, righteous. And as Christians, we know this, right? We get this. We confess this every time we say something like, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But is it really that simple? Oftentimes we wonder. So maybe if we combine our own efforts, our own good works, our own self-righteousness to everything that Jesus has done, well then, it can only improve our chances, right? It can only make us that much more righteous. And for the Pharisees, the the self-righteous work they wanted to add to Jesus was their fasting. What is it for you? What is the thing or things that cause you to say, God, I thank you that I am not like other people? Maybe it isn't abstaining from food. Maybe it's abstaining from something that is actually evil. You know, you look out into the world and you see all kinds of detestable things happening in our world and the detestable people who do them and you think, yeah, but not me. I haven't done those things, at least not physically. If only those people were as clean and as disciplined and as righteous as I am. Maybe it's not your fasting record. Maybe it's your voting record. God, I thank you that I am on the right side of all of these issues. And I thank you that I do not vote or think like all of those other people. If only more people voted as righteously as I do. Can you imagine how much better our community, our state, our nation would be? Or maybe it's just something more general. You know, not only am I a Christian, but I am not one of those judgy Christians. Which means I'm not only better than non-Christians because I'm a Christian, 
It also means that I'm better than most Christian Christians. Or perhaps it's your church attendance or your volunteerism or your contributions. The fact that you're still married at your age, that you have been married so long, look around you, no one has been married as long as you. No one appreciates or cherishes marriage as much as you do. Maybe it's the fact that your kids are not colossal screw-ups. Or maybe, maybe it was, it was that, that one time that you told that person about Jesus. Do you see how easy it is? How easy it is to think that there's a part of us, something, anything that we can do, something, anything that we can offer that would add to who Christ is and what he's done to save us. But you think it can't hurt, right? I mean, all of those things that you just mentioned, Pastor, are good things that we should be doing, right? Well, yeah. But, but think back to the parables that Jesus just told. Which of those examples that Jesus just gave is better off in the end by combining the two? Not the garment. The new patch made the tear worse. And, and both the new wine and the old, old wineskin were ruined. Everything was worse. You see what Jesus is saying? He doesn't condemn the Pharisees fasting as sinful. Just as I am not condemning your voting or church attendance records, your volunteerism or contributions as being sinful, all of those things can be good and are potentially God-pleasing things. But if you think they or anything else that you could do is the kind of thing that has enough merit on its own that all you need to do is sprinkle just a little bit of Jesus on the top of it and you are good to go, then you've ruined them both. You've taken a gift, a gesture, an act of service you did and you attributed to it glory that it does not deserve. Namely, the power to make you righteous in God's eyes. And by giving glory to it and ruining it, you also then rob glory that belongs to Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior. And you ruin them both. Friends, this is why the bridegroom has come. This is why he has come for you. From beginning to end, everything he did and every promise he made is for you. He has given you the new garment. He has given you your wedding gown that is without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. He has clothed you in the robe of his own perfect righteousness, put on you in baptism. Week after week, he invites you to feast with him where he is both host and meal, given and poured out for you. He invites you week after week to hear from his servant, pick up your mat and go home. Your sins are forgiven. He promises to be faithful to you, to never leave you or forsake you, to be with you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, till death. Well, see, that's the greatest part of all. Even death cannot part you from your bridegroom because he's already died and rose 
And what that now means is that all that awaits you is feasting with him forever. God, we thank you that we are not, well, that we are not what we were. That we are not what we used to be. We thank you that you have made us what we are. Righteous in your sight, solely through the merits of your Son, by the work of your Spirit, and in your name, amen. With your life, blood as the price, never grudging for the lost ones, that tremendous sacrifice. Give